It is good to see you guys this morning. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, we got the doors open. It's going to breeze a little bit. Should knock the uh, strange heat wave going on in the gym down a little bit, um, and we'll get comfortable. If you've got your Bibles, you should go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. It's towards the back of your Bible. We started last week looking at this book, and we're going to take our time uh, through the next couple of, through a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, to walk through this book. And while you're making your way to 1 John, um, it was my intention to show you a picture that I found last night that I got really excited about. Um, it was a picture of a poster that you could actually buy. And in my excitement, I actually forgot to send it to Shelby to put up on the screen for you to see. So let me explain it to you. It's a poster that you could buy. And, and it's this white poster. And it was a great picture of this person kind of holding it off to the side. And, and it had this rudimentary looking solar system kind of thing on it. And, and in big black letters, this, this is what it said. The universe revolves around, and then in big red letters, it said, us. And right next to the poster, this was the description. Harken back to a time when humans were, un- were the center of the universe. In his book, Planetary Hypotheses, Claudius Ptolemy calculated that the earth was the center of everything. It was a grand idea that stuck around till about th- the, late, the early 1500s. Celebrate a dazzling example of human hubris with this 8.5 by 12.5 two-color letterpress print. The universe indeed, revolves around us. I loved it. I saw it. I, I, I loved it, especially as I was thinking about this particular week, because, again, if we're, if we're honest and you really think about your life, do not most of our troubles arise because we live day in and day out thinking that we're the center of the universe. I mean, do not the majority of our our troubles and and heartaches not arise because we live thinking that everything and everyone does or at least should revolve around us and our purposes and our plans. I mean, are you not most often frustrated by your constant attempts to, to get people around you and circumstances around you and situations around you to conform to your little planetary orbit that you've got that's supposed to be revolving around you. And don't most of your struggles and heartaches come because people and things are not doing what you want them to do. They're out of orbit, so to speak. And you spend a great deal of time trying to get people and circumstances and situations to to line up to ultimately revolve around you and accomplish the purposes and the plans that you have for them. Spouses, co-workers, children. Aren't most of our frustrations born out of this assumption that people in our lives are just not orbiting around us the way that we think they should? I mean, a simple little test to see if, if you're one who tends to find yourself at the center of the universe is this. And, and I don't know, this is one of those self-defeating tests because if it's true of you, you probably don't know unless someone's been honest enough with you to tell you. But one simple little way that you can find out is if, is if you can tell, if you can think that this may be you, if every conversation that you tend to have with people, you always find a way to turn it back towards you. You ever been around those people? I mean, you could be going through something that's just unbelievably devastating, 
And the first thing they have to say is, yeah, that was kind of like when I was doing this, and this is what I was feeling, and, and, and everything becomes about them again. Every conversation and every circumstance and every situation and every opportunity has to revolve around you. And don't most of our heartaches in life and in relationships come because we tend to live with this assumption that we are at the center of our universe. And everyone and everything does or at least should be properly aligned in our own little personal solar system. Everything and everyone, including our relationship with God. Now, John, the writer of this letter, the, the pastor of this church, this region in Ephesus, was all too aware of this human tendency to place ourselves at the middle of our own world. And being a good and wise pastor, he's going to, he's going to squash this notion in this young church. He's going to deal with this young church. And he's going to deal with us and our tendency to live as though we're the center of the universe. And he's going to do it not because he's mean. He's He's going to do it not because he's got a grudge. He's going to do it for our joy. He's going to do it for your joy. And if you remember, that's, that's actually why he's writing. That's what we looked at last week. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, look at what John says. He says, we're writing these things, this letter, what he's about to explain and what he's previously explained. He's writing these things that our joy may be complete, that your joy may actually remain full. He wants God's people to be marked by a deep and abiding joy that's rooted in a satisfaction and stability that's found in a relationship with God. This is what he wants for God's people. He he wants God's people to be marked by a secure and tangible joy that is stable in the face of instability, that's not conditional It's not dominated and directed by circumstance. It's a joy that is rooted, that is nourished, that is grounded in who God is and the relationship that we have with him because of what he's done for us through his son Jesus. This is what's to mark God's people. This is what we talked about last week. So this morning, what John is going to do with this intention to encourage God's people to live in the deep and abiding and complete joy that is to be ours because of Jesus, to, to encourage us to be marked by this joy, John is going to begin to point out a, a few dangers, a few things that tend to rob us of this joy that is ours. And so if you're open there, we're going to keep reading, and we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 10. But this morning, we're actually just going to end up sitting on verse 5. John is going to to show us a few public enemies to our joy. This is what he says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Let me pray for us this morning as we begin to take a look at this.
Father, thank you for the privilege that we have again to gather together this week, uh, to be free to read your word, to be free to gather together, to, to make much of you. Uh, it's our hope as we do this, Lord, that through the teaching of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can do and you would begin to conform our character into the image of your son, Jesus. We want to be like you for your glory and our joy. So do what only you can do this morning with your word, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So danger number one to our joy. You find it in verse five. The tendency we have is to skip down to verse six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and look at all these statements that John begins to make. But if you slow down and you back up, the first real danger to our joy, the first real public enemy to our deep and abiding joy is actually found in verse five. John says this, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if you're kind of reading this in context and you've gone from verse four where John says, this is why we're writing, that your joy may be full, that your joy may be complete, that your joy may remain full. And he goes on to say, this is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is and you're expecting something. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness. And if you're reading in context, you're most likely going, but wait a minute, John. You said you were talking about our joy, that you're writing and telling us these things for our, our joy. And then you say, here's the message, God's light. I'm not, I'm not making the connection, John. Tell me, tell me about my joy. That's, you know, remember, we're at the middle, right? Things tend to revolve around us. And, and John's talking about our joy. And it's, okay, tell me about my joy, John. Now, I want it, fullness of joy. And I'm not making the, the connection. In, in verse five, John introduces in this letter, something that is so fundamental, so foundational that missing it produces the majority of the pain and the heartache and the disappointment and the majority of the absence of joy that we experience in our our life. I'll say it in the problem, then I'll say it in the positive. Looking to anything or anyone as the reference point for our joy apart from God will ultimately lead lead to failure. Looking to anything or anyone else besides God as the center point or reference point for your joy will ultimately lead to failure. Positively, God is always to be the starting point for your joy and in your thinking. John is a a good pastor and he's all too aware of the reality that We most often, even as Christians, he's writing to the church, remember, that we most often don't start with God in our thinking. What tends to happen is we tend to assume him. We tend to assume that we're thinking rightly about him. We tend to assume that our our knowledge of him is actually correct. We live in this assumption about God, and then we tend to move on from there. And John is aware of this, and he knows that our general tendency is to place ourselves in the middle of the universe and just assume right things about God. And what tends to happen then is that we're sitting here on the throne of our own lives, calling the shots in our own world with assumptions that may or may not be correct about who God is. And the problem is when we think like that and we live with this assumption and understanding that we're in the center of the universe, the things that we feel like are most important, the needs that we perceived are most important, the things that we think must be done and must be met, 
Those are the things that become the starting point and the reference point for how we understand the world around us. God is assumed. And everything around us, every person, every relationship, every situation, gets seen through the lens of our own wants and our own needs. Everything has to bend in reference to us. Because we're at the center. We're the gravitational pull. The only way we can see things is in reference to our own wants and our own desires and our own needs. The problem is, if, if you start with yourself as the primary reference point in life, if you're the center of the universe, if you're the, the North Star, give you another one, you're always going to go off course. You're always going to go off course. Because how you understand everything How you understand everything will always be colored by your own understanding of yourself. How you understand every person and every relationship and every circumstance and situation will be colored by your own understanding of who you are and what you think is most important and what you think must be done. This inherent kind of self-centeredness. I mean, it's the root of all of our problems and it always has been. If we were to go back to the beginning of the story in the book of Genesis, in, in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we, we learn that God created us in his image and in his likeness, and he created us to enjoy this relationship, this deep and abiding relationship that we talked about last week, that John talked about in the beginning of this letter, that produces this real and abiding, unshakable joy. That's what we were meant to experience with God. That's how he created us, in his image and likeness, to enjoy this relationship and joy forever. We decided that we needed to be at the center. And we claimed equality with God. This is the story in Genesis chapter 3. How Adam and Eve then began to understand the world around them. How they even began to understand who God was and his grace towards them in creation. And his love towards them and relating to them. And his grace towards them and giving them this beautiful world to enjoy. When Adam and Eve decided that they should be the ones calling the shots in their life, everything around them had to bend to their perception of themselves. And all of a sudden, even God was holding out. Their understanding of who God was and his grace toward them begins to get skewed. Our understanding of who God is and his grace towards us gets skewed when we place ourselves at the center of the universe. Our perspective on God and on his grace, it gets colored by our own perception of our self. It skews a right understanding of it. All of a sudden, with us at the center of the universe, we approach the grace of God with an entirely wrong perspective. We recognize the the pain in our life and the loneliness in our life and the sorrow in our life and the emptiness in our life. And we come to God and we come to Christianity with this perspective of, here's my need. I'm lonely. Do you have anything that could fix my loneliness? You know, I'm sorrowful. Do you have any joy that might offset my sorrow? I'm in pain. I'm in anxiety. Christianity, God, do you have anything that could offset my anxiety? Do you have any peace that you could offer me? Anything to offset what I'm feeling in this world? 
our understanding of who God is and our understanding of even God's grace gets skewed when we place ourselves at the center of the universe. And what John is trying to bring the church back to, what the scriptures are constantly trying to bring God's people back to is that if you want to know joy, if you wanted to know peace, if you want to know security, you don't start with your own needs. You start with God. You don't start with yourself as the reference point. You start with God. The scriptures are always calling us back to starting with God. This is what John is doing right here when he's talking about this peace that we're supposed to have and he wants us to have. Why does he not continue on with that? Why does he start with God? If you don't start with God, you can never really truly know yourself. You you can never truly know yourself until you see yourself as God sees you. And so you've got to start with God. Just as a man named Nicholas Copernicus came along in the 1500s and began to write a study that said, you know what? The earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, the sun is the center of the universe. And the earth, just like the other planets in the universe, actually revolve around the sun. Just like he came along and said, we can't rightly understand how this thing works until we rightly understand where we are in relation to it. We can't rightly understand the grace of God until we rightly understand our place in the story. We can't rightly understand our relationship with God until we understand our place. And everything, including your joy, begins with a right understanding of God and then works its way out from there. And this is what John is doing. And this is an incredibly difficult shift in our thinking. This is an incredibly hard shift. I mean, every single last one of us is born with this innate desire to be at the center. My six-month-old has an innate desire that's small at the moment but grows every single day to be at the center of her own universe. Every single one of us is born with this. It was hard for the people in Copernicus' time to accept what he was teaching them about the solar system. I mean, just, just imagine, just compare the natural reality of understanding that to the eternal reality of understanding your relationship with God. When Copernicus came along and said, you know what, the earth is not the center, people didn't go, oh, thanks. We were curious about that. Now, now we can redraw all of our maps and better understand things. It incited a revolution. It incited hatred. Why? People had been taught and had grown up for their entire lifetime being told, you see everything around you? See all those stars? They didn't have the internet and TV back then. They were amazed by the wonder of creation. Imagine that. And they didn't have lights in the city that blocked out all the stars. They spent time learning about creation. People were taught from the day they were born, you see all of this? We're at the center of all of it. It all revolves around us. When he came around and said, you're wrong, it created a revolution not only in science but in philosophy. And you know what? Even some of the, ba- the greatest Christian thinkers couldn't handle it. Calvin couldn't handle it. Luther, eh, I'm not so sure about that. There's this innate desire that we have to be the center of the universe. 
And it's a very difficult shift in our thinking. It's a hard shift, but it's a necessary shift for your joy. For your joy. God has to be the starting point in our thinking about life and joy. And it's important for God to be the starting point to then be very clear about what God we're actually talking about. And this is what John continues on in verse five to tell us. What does John actually teach us about God who is to be the starting point, the reference point for our understanding of life and our joy? So what he said, look at verse five. We're just gonna sit in verse five today, so don't, you you can look forward to the rest of them. It's gonna get fun next week. This is the message that we have heard from him. Now, take note of this real quick. What John is saying right here is, what I'm about to tell you, this message that I'm proclaiming to you, this message about God being the starting point of your joy, it's not something I came up with. John's not saying this is my own philosophical idea about how I can encourage you towards this joy that you're to have and remain in. No, this is something that I heard from him. And the him is who he's been talking about in the first four, four, four verses. He's talking about Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. John's saying, this is the message that I heard from Jesus. And, and since Jesus taught me, I'm proclaiming to you. I'm telling you the thing that Jesus told me. And this is what he said. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. John says, I'm starting with Jesus. And Jesus is starting with God. And this is the message that I heard from Jesus. Not that your needs can be met. Not that that thing that you perceive is the most important thing to be met in your life can be met. This is the message that I heard from Jesus. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. John doesn't say that he's expressing his picture of God or his interpretation of God or or his particular understanding of God. No, I'm telling you about the the character and the nature of God, just as Jesus told us. And if you're going to experience the deep and abiding fellowship with God that produces this joy, this complete joy, this remaining joy, this stable joy, then you're going to have to know him and start with him for who he is. He's going to have to be the starting point in your thinking and in your pursuit, and you're going to have to know him and come to him as he is. And he is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. He is light, not a light. Not one of many lights. Not the brightest of the lights. He is light. He is light. And this is a description of God's character. This is a description of his nature, of his being, of All the ways that light is used metaphorically throughout the scriptures, the most consistent use of light, especially in relating and referring to the person of God. The most consistent use of light in scriptures is always referring to the holiness of God. It's always referring to the holiness of God. And what John is saying, essentially, is that to know God and to experience the joy that comes from a deep and abiding relationship with him, you're gonna have to start with him in his holiness. You're going to have to start with him and know him for who he is. And he is holy. He is holy. 
Now, if you're reading and you're thinking and you're in that church and you're, and you're listening to someone read this letter that John has written, you, you, you might have expected him to go somewhere else with that. Here, here's the message about my joy. God is, and can I have love for 200, please, Alex? I'll take, I'll take mercy for 400. John says God is holy. He is light. He is utter purity. Here's the thing. If you do not start with God's holiness, your whole idea and your whole conception of his love will be skewed. John is encouraging us for our joy. He's teaching us that which he heard from Jesus himself. If we do not start with God's holiness, our whole idea of God's love will be skewed. I mean, without God's holiness, without God's utter purity, all of our ideas about God's love will resemble something more akin to a sentimental Hallmark card. A great preacher I was reading this week that helped me tremendously in this, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said that all of our ideas about God's love, apart from God's holiness, will wind up flabby. They'll be flabby. And you see, flabby sentimentality can never, ever stand up under the weight of real heartache and and real pain. And you can tweet that if you want. Flabby sentimentality can never bear the weight of real heartache and, and real pain. Flabby sentimentality cannot produce the security and the joy that you're so desperately wanting that God has given us when the ground underneath our feet becomes shaky and unstable. If we misunderstand the love of God because we somehow try to bypass the holiness of God, if we misunderstand his love, then we fundamentally misunderstand his grace. If we don't come to God as he is, if we don't come to God and know God and his holiness, the end result will be we'll misunderstand God's grace. You see, if, if God is, is love alone, if his holiness does not shape his love, then when you and I sin, all God needs to do is actually just forgive us. Then no justice is needed. There's no holiness that's actually offended. He just needs to forgive us. And if that was the case, then the cross on which his son was sacrificed actually becomes meaningless. So here's the thing. God cannot forgive sin apart from the cross. God is holy. He is utter purity. In his utter purity, sin demands justice. The Bible says that God is so pure. The prophet Habakkuk said this. He said, God is so pure, so holy, that his eyes can't even look upon iniquity. He cannot tolerate wrong. His holiness demands justice for sin. His holiness demands the cross. Without God's holiness, the cross makes no sense. It has no meaning. That's why so many people try to discount the cross and get to God by going around it. They don't want to deal with his holiness. 
That's why the cross is so often discounted these days in books that you read or, or, or talk shows that you hear about. When everybody can talk about God's love, they can talk about God, that's okay. You can say God loves you on whatever TV show you want. Just don't deal with the cross, just bypass his holiness and get to his love. But you can never truly understand God's love or God's grace apart from God's holiness. Everything, including his love, is shaped by his holiness. And he can only rightly and fully and truly forgive sin as he has dealt with it in his own way as his holiness demands through the death and resurrection of his son. If you misunderstand the love of God by trying to bypass the holiness of God, ultimately even your understanding of God's grace is going to be skewed and it's going to be wrong. The other things that the light kind of stands for in the scriptures apart from holiness and, and purity is, is this idea of illumination. That, that light throughout the scriptures illuminates. It shows what's there and most importantly sometimes what's not there. And nothing exposes what is really true in relation to us and God like standing before his holiness. When you deal with God for who he is in his holiness, that light shines in your heart and in your life and nothing shows you what's really true about what's there in your understanding of God like dealing with his holiness. And the prophet Isaiah was confronted with God for who he is in his holiness. His response was, woe is me. There was no idea or thought of him being in the center of his universe anymore. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. When you deal with God and his holiness for who he is, what's really there is seen for what it is. Who you are is exposed in all of its truth. And you cannot rightly understand God's grace towards you apart from knowing who you really are. And when we begin to deal with God in his holiness, when his holiness begins to shine in our hearts and our conception of our self gets measured rightly, and when we see him for who he really is, all of a sudden the holiness of God that may have once produced dread or may have once produced fear, all of a sudden it begins to ignite a joy and a passion for the wisdom of God that sent his son to live on this earth, the life that he created you and I to live in perfect fellowship with him. All of a sudden we have joy at the thought of the incarnation. All of a sudden, there's joy that begins to arise in our hearts at the thought of Jesus' life lived in our place. All of a sudden, the idea of Jesus going to the cross and our sins being placed on him and God's wrath being exhausted in his body begins to bring tears, not of, of sadness, not of anger, not of some sense of injustice, but of joy. And the idea that God accepted him and vindicated his sacrifice by raising him from the dead in the resurrection and placing him at his right hand right now where he rules and reigns and has promised to return and his sending of his spirit to make our hearts new 
and to give us a new heart and a new spirit that desires to know him and to obey him and, and to have the relationship with him that he has given us. All of a sudden, the thoughts of Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he promises produce joy. The holiness of God doesn't produce a fear anymore. It begins to put us in our proper perspective and place in relationship to God. And all of a sudden, joy, joy begins to spring forth in our lives, in our hearts. Knowing God and his holiness for who he is, knowing that his holiness demands his son's sacrifice, knowing him for who he is and starting with him and not yourself, it delivers you from attempting to find a real and abiding relationship with God any other way than through his son. Knowing God and his holiness starting with God for your joy, dealing with God as he has revealed himself and as holy. It will deliver you from trying to have a relationship with God any other way than through his son, Jesus. You see, in our self-centeredness, in our desire to remain at the center of our own universe and seated on our own little throne, we can create all of these different ways to have what we can conceive in our minds as fellowship or relationship with God. Through our own efforts and our own self-convincing, we can begin to secure in our own minds that this idea that we have a right relationship with God. We can come up with our own path towards him. We can come up with our own way to be reconciled to him. When we deal with God first and we come to him as he's revealed himself as holy, His holiness, like light, illuminates the reality that any attempt to know God, any attempt to have fellowship with God apart from his son, Jesus, any attempt to find real and abiding joy that comes from God apart from coming to him through his son, Jesus, will ultimately prove to be false. It will ultimately prove to be empty. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was telling you about earlier, great British preacher um, from the 1900s, in writing about God's holiness, he said this, and it was so helpful for me this week. I, I, I hope it helps you. This is what he said. He said, there is only one way to true and lasting joy, and that is to start with the holiness of God. If I start there, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna change his pronouns. I'm gonna say, if you start there, you will be delivered from every false peace, from every false joy. You will be humbled to the dust. You will see your unworthiness and that you deserve nothing at the hands of God. You will come to the only one who can deliver you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything that you may receive from him is true. If you receive joy from Christ, it's a true joy, a real joy, a lasting joy, an unshakable joy. Have you created a relationship with God in your mind and in your life that bypasses his son, Jesus? Have you created a relationship with God in your mind that somehow bypasses the necessity of faith in his son Jesus? Have you 
created a relationship with God in your life and in your mind that somehow does not demand the cross. See, starting with God in your thinking and in your pursuit of joy demands that you start with his holiness. And when you start with God's holiness, when you recognize God for who he is and deal with God for who he is and has received and has revealed himself, what his holiness begins to demand from you is an admission of utter darkness. An admission of utter sinfulness. An admission of of utter inability to be who God has made you to be. It demands an admission of, of neediness. Have you created a relationship with God that bypasses a right and real understanding of who you really are? A right and real understanding of your sin, of your need for forgiveness? Have you created a relationship with God in your mind that's giving you a sense of peace and a sense of joy that is not built upon the grace of God that's found in Jesus. Prophet Jeremiah, one of the scariest passages for me as a, a pastor. God gave him this word to preach to the church, to preach to the people of Israel. And it was a message of woe. He said, woe to those who preach peace where there is no peace. Who preach joy where there is no joy. Have you manufactured a peace with God where there really is no peace because you have not come to know God as he has revealed himself through his son Jesus. Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life. No one no one comes to the father but by me. No one can experience this fullness of joy, this complete joy, this remaining and abiding joy that is found in deep relationship with God apart from knowing it through Jesus. It's not possible. It's not possible. John said, we're, we're writing these things. I, I'm, I'm writing these things as your pastor that your joy that your joy would be complete, that your joy would remain full. How is that possible, John? It's possible by knowing the deep and abiding fellowship with the true and living holy God through his son. It's possible by starting with knowing God for who he is in his holiness and seeing yourself for who you are in your sinfulness and confessing your, un- your utter inability to be who God has created you to be. It starts by confessing your absolute need and dependence upon God's grace to show you forgiveness, to show you mercy. It starts by your confessing your utter inability to be righteous and holy, to stand before a God whose eyes can't look on sin, They can't look upon iniquity. And then thanking God, thanking God for the grace that he can show you through his son by giving you Jesus' righteousness that you might stand before God and know him and experience this deep and abiding joy that he's intended for his people. 
See, just as, just as the world eventually learned that the universe doesn't revolve around the earth, that, that in fact we are absolutely dependent upon the sun for light, which gives warmth, which helps produce food, which exposes and illuminates beauty. Just as we learned that we're utterly dependent upon the sun for our own existence, and a revolution was ignited in the world based on that revelation. The scriptures make clear that we are absolutely, utterly dependent upon God's Son, the light of the world, for our existence, for our life, for our peace, and for our joy. And my prayer for us this morning, for myself and and for us as a church, is that this revelation, this understanding that we're actually not at the center of the universe, that God is, and that starting with him and dealing with him for who he has revealed himself to be is the only way to actually experience real life, real peace, and real joy. My prayer is that God would do what only he can do and that that revelation would actually create a revolution in your life. Would actually create a revolution in your life for your joy. For your joy. Not for your knowledge. I don't care about that. But for your joy. And ultimately for for God's glory. And so that's what I'm going to pray for this morning. And then we're going to take a couple of minutes to just respond appropriately then in your own time of of prayer. So join me. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark as far as it is in understanding who you are and what it means to actually come to know you and to relate to you. And I pray this morning, God, that, that your Holy Spirit would do what only he can do and that, and that he would make your light, your holiness shine in hearts this morning. That we would see ourselves for who we really are when we stand before you apart from your son. For those of us who who have never given our lives to to you, who have never trusted in your son Jesus, I pray that your holiness would shine in hearts this morning, that we might see our need for you. We might see our helplessness apart from you and that some would come and they would give themselves to you this morning. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, for those of us who are followers of you, that your holiness would shine in our hearts this morning, that we might see again who we are without you and that it might lead us to to joy, that we, we might be reminded of your of your grace towards us and what it really is. We might see the ways that we've taken it for granted and it would lead us to repentance, and, but it would lead us to joy. Lord, I pray these things and I ask these things not, that, not to incite fear or dread, but I pray these things for our joy and your glory. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.